Hi everyone, you're listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview investors to find out how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Enjoy the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview multifamily real estate investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Now, today we are bringing back the Bill Ham, and this is the action items episode. So last, what, it was on Tuesday where we just talked about uh, a lot of, uh, whoa, 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 I'm getting all tongue-tied here. On Tuesday, this is where we talked about his new book coming out, Real Estate Raw. We really dove into that and his inspiration behind starting that book. And we got nitty gritty, but now we're going to get even more into the details and get even more granular, especially when it comes to analyzing a deal. What's a good deal versus a bad deal? So Welcome back to the show, Bill. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, yeah, let's just continue the continue the conversation from sure. Tuesday. Uh, now, we were talking about you know going out, finding deals, starting in our little small circle, and expanding out. Now, when we are looking at deals, I guess like what should we start looking for, and what should we start avoiding? Yeah, um, it's a huge question. Could probably very big question. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, but, sorry. Very big yeah, question. No problem. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Some high level. You know, one thing I, I kind of tell people is you got to figure out what is right for you to get started. So like everybody wants to know what is a good deal. Well, first I would say, what, what can you borrow? So what I tell students is to kind of think about what is it that you can qualify for a loan? You know, and, and let's then translate that into number of units in the market. So let's say that you're capable of borrowing $1 million, let's just say. Then I would say, okay, whatever city you're in, take that $1 million and now let's go figure out how much real estate you can buy for that $1 million. Because that's going to be a different number from New York to Atlanta to Miami to, you know, Texas. It's right. Same million bucks, but it's going to buy a different amount of real estate in a different market. And so that's the way that, uh, you know, a listener can kind of translate that into their own area. What can you borrow and, and then turn that into a number of units? And then that's what you probably want to spend about 80% of your time looking at. 20% of your time, hey, let's go look at big giant deals because you never know, you might get lucky. Uh, if you find a big deal, it's a really good deal. Call me. Uh, you know, we'll we'll take care of it for you. <laughs> Point being is, you know, eighty percent of the time, look look at deals that you have a, a good probability of closing, and that really kind of starts with the mortgage. With the mortgage, with your yeah. debt that you're gonna be unless you're paying all cash. And if you are, call me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but that, that's what I would say is really start with your borrowing ability. That's a good good metric to start looking at deals with. Got it. So I mean, let's um, LA, I get. I'd love to get a hypothetical and like, just like keep it small then. Or if you want, I'd love to at least like, let's say dive into the Atlanta market then because okay, I know that's where that. you're from. I dive yeah. in and just use it as a uh, an example Absolutely. of, you know, what would be considered like a solid property. And I, even just like analyzing your thought process, what goes behind sure. it. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, me, me personally, personally, and I can't say this for everybody, but I am moving towards newer buildings. And it is something that I recommend that people be careful of, especially in the Atlanta market, especially in our southeastern and southern markets where the moisture levels are higher. Be careful about some of these buildings that were built in the 1960s and the 1970s. They're getting pretty old. And that's just kind of a general public warning conversation is like, you know, be careful about a overpriced, low cap rate building that was built in the 60s or 70s 
because we're really starting as an operator, and I've operated thousands of units, we're really starting to see some of those properties have a lot of expenses, un- unplanned expenses, plumbing being a big one. And I mentioned the moisture kind of getting under buildings and creating mold and things like that. These buildings are just getting old and there's nothing wrong with older buildings. It's only when you overpay for an older building and then have a bunch of repair and maintenance jump up on you that you weren't expecting. That's when you get in trouble. So for me, I'm saying, you know, things that are probably in the B category, 1985, 1990s, somewhere in that range, you know, pretty good location. Most people are going further and further out chasing yield and cash flow. I'm actually the opposite. I'm going more towards the interior of the city because that's where the appreciation is. And, uh, and cash flow is great, but you've got to have appreciation if you want to exit the deal properly. So I'm, I'm saying probably want to stay closer to your major metros, newer buildings. And then what is a good deal? Well, that really depends on your cost of capital. So you'd have to calculate that different answer altogether. Yeah. yeah. We can, we can dive into so many different directions here. Sure, uh, you can, you really can. Yeah. With uh, one, one comment I wanted to address is the, the idea of overpaying. How, how do you know that you're not overpaying, especially if, if someone new is coming into this? That's, yeah, that's tough. You know, it's, it's when we're discussing overpaying and the age of a building, it's really about having someone go in there and inspect that building and, and tell you, what's the interior condition. And that's that's hard because we're not talking about the lipstick stuff. We're not talking about the paint and the carpet and the nice shiny countertop. I'm talking about the plumbing, the walls, the electrical, the foundation, stuff that's not as obvious. And so I would say step one, you want to hire a professional and have them come in and give your building an inspection and uh, write up a report. And then you can kind of say, okay, these things, you know, grade them one through 10, like, okay, you know, one being horrible, 10 being okay. And you kind of grade the different areas of the building and then say, all right, well, if stuff is at a catastrophe level, those need to be replaced right now. Maybe other things could be replaced in one year, three years, five years. So kind of create a budget like that. And then ask yourself, is is your pro forma going to allow you to cash flow enough? So if all of a sudden you have to replace all the plumbing, have you budgeted for that? Most of the time, what that's going to do is cause you to bring a bunch of extra capital to the deal at closing, and that lowers the cash and cash return. And so the only way that you can get the cash or cash return back up is to reduce the price. And that's kind of the rub these days is like prices are not really coming down. They will, but they're not at the moment. And so going in there and telling a seller that they have a bunch of rotten plumbing is not a conversation that's going over very well in the market right now. I completely understand. I have this conversation about once a week, but it doesn't change the <laughs> physics that their building's old. Yeah. It doesn't, you know? And so that's just that's just where we are in the world. So yeah, those are some of the things. Cost basis is a is technically what we're discussing. You know, cost basis means what you got to buy the building for and what you have to put into it. So it's your total all-in cost should be considerably less than the market value. less than market value. And we're seeing that that's not the case these days. As a matter of fact, your cost basis may be above market value. And that's why I'm saying, hey, watch that. You don't want to buy something and then have to put in a lot more money and have your total cost basis be more than the property is actually appraising for. That's what I'm kind of cautioning people with older buildings. And so in the meantime, I say, hey, until that market cools off and we start using a lot of creative financing, Probably if you're getting traditional debt, you want to move towards newer buildings. Let's use creative financing on these older C-class, you know, affordable housing buildings where we can do lease options and seller financing and things of that nature, reduce some of that risk 
then it's time to do those older buildings. But if you're just going to get in traditional financing, I would say be careful with age. Be careful with age. When you are analyzing a deal, do you run your numbers by anybody with you know that local market expertise? Like, do you run your your numbers with the property manager, with the you know construction manager, uh, any subcontractors, like? just to get a, a basis for, for what you could be paying and just. Kind of yeah. I don't in, in Atlanta because we are our own management company and I have all that staff. So yes, I have staff to look at it. What I would recommend to listeners is yes, exactly what you just said. If you're looking at a market that you don't have a lot of, of management team. Yeah. You want to kind of create a performer, but you do need a backdrop of reality in which to place that those numbers. Am I making these up? Is this achievable? Is it real? Yeah, that's going to be probably property management company. Maybe that's where I would start with most people is, is have a property management company kind of look at your performance and make sure that you're not crazy and that they can kind of operate the property at that level. But then you do want to be giving that property management company the business. So don't just use them as some sort of coach, a free coach. That's not a good idea. But if you are establishing a relationship with the property management company and you do plan to use them for property management, then it's an acceptable a relationship. Absolutely. Now, uh, and, and in terms of building credibility with a property management company as well, I mean, do you, would it just be as simple as like calling them up and saying like, Hey, I'm looking to buy properties in this area. And I, you know, I'd love to run my numbers by you. And it, it or is there a more of a vetting process of like understanding? Well, are the vetting process on a, on a property management company, when you want to be calling property management companies that already manage like kind assets, so this is a property management company that specializes in retail single family. Yeah, and you're you're having to look at your hundred unit complex. Yeah, that's right. not a fit. Or yeah. vice versa, if you're looking at a, a you know ten duplexes and you call an A class high level management company that does boutique firm or boutique properties. Yeah, that's not a fit. Not so a fit. you want to make sure the management company is managing something similar to what you're looking at buying. But yeah, other than that, that's that's basically what I would say to them verbally. Yeah, huh. looking to buy in your area, looking to you know need some help going to need a management company. So I'm, I'm putting that carrot on the stick there and then saying, but, you know, can you help me out here and there? And I think as long as you're not, a, uh, again, as long as you don't use that relationship abusively and just kind of start calling management companies going, you know, what about this deal? What about this deal? What about this deal? As long as you're not doing that, I think you'll be fine. Yeah. Transparency. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. They're not a free coach. That's just, don't, don't try yeah. and make them your point of education. That's not a good idea, but you know, yeah, as consultants, absolutely. Yeah. Huh. And what is that also a topic that that you go over in the book as well? Do we miss any? I'm sure we missed a, a ton of topics within real estate raw because I, I remember also seeing something with like raising private money too. And oh yeah. Oh yeah. We 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 have covered ten percent of the book. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ton of information in there. So um, you know, I guess like I would love to know what was your favorite part about the book then. Um, you know, actually, I think one of my favorite parts of the book uh, is is what I call the conveyor belt theory of real estate. Um, that's a new concept that I've come out with and that's in this book. And it is a function of teaching people how a the basis of a real estate company or portfolio begins. And and I'll I'll hear, you know, if you're if you're if you're watching, I'll kind of thumb through here and show you what it looks like. It's actually part of the logo. So if you see the logo, there's this conveyor belt here. That's actually uh, part of the conveyor belt theory of theory of real estate. And so what I show here is, is how you actually build a portfolio using a conveyor belt 
sort of model. And so you can imagine a conveyor belt and, and it's five years long. And so we're going to be putting properties on this conveyor belt and they're going to be moving along the conveyor belt. And so what I show is that the, the closing is putting a property on this conveyor belt as it moves along. That's our operational window. We cash flow. But then when the property comes off the back of that conveyor belt in five years, because that's the typical hold time for, for assets, when it comes off the, the front, I guess, of the conveyor belt, uh, that's a liquidity event. That's either a sale or a refinance. And so the model shows you that it takes you know, some years to get your, your portfolio built, your conveyor belt. And as you move along, you're probably going to start closing larger and larger properties. In the beginning, when that first one comes off the conveyor belt, liquidity event, maybe it's a sale, refinance, whatever the case, take the capital gains, roll it back around to the front of the conveyor belt to the new purchase, right? And now you're limiting partners. You're starting to use less investors. You're building your own wealth. And if you will build the conveyor belt and, and run that, that's a real estate business. And over time, those first smaller properties you started with, they all kind of come off. And now maybe your conveyor belt's full of, of apartments or larger properties. And that's what I did. I started off my conveyor belt. I've been doing this for 16 years. Um, you know, in the beginning five-year window, it was mostly houses, small multifamily, Next five-year window kind of really started getting into larger commercial. And then the last five years have been nothing but apartments. And so that's kind of been my conveyor belt. And I've always had something to sell and something to buy and something to sell and something to buy. And when you really kind of study the material here, I show you that cash flow is great. But a lot of cases, your real value, your real wealth is coming from those liquidity events, the sale, the refi. That's your, your big ticket dollars. And if you can build a conveyor belt where you're putting one on a closing and one off a sale or refi every year, cash flow isn't really where your large source of revenue comes from. It's from the operation of the conveyor belts, from those liquidity events, taking that money and rolling it back to the front each time. That's how we create legacy wealth. And a lot of people have never actually really stopped and thought about it. They think, well, why would I ever sell real estate? If a deal makes money, why don't I just buy it and hold on to it forever and give it to my grandkids? It's a great concept, but it doesn't really work that well in application. Buildings age, you're going to want to turn the portfolio. Somebody's going to show up and offer you a lot of profit. That's why we normally sell. You know, so it's really in the creation of this conveyor belt is the legacy wealth, not the assets, not the individual properties. That's a mistake that people make. And I kind of go through that in the whole chapter in here. That's probably one of my, my favorite parts that comes with the pictures and all the fun stuff. So Yeah, I was going to say that's actually a, a refreshing perspective because I know that a lot of people want to get into this where they just want to give their building and cash flow infinitely until the, and, and just give it to their grandkids. You'll make your grandkids slumlords. Mm. That'll probably yeah. be old sale by the time you get your grandkids. That's, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and let me, here's, here's an uncomfortable part. Let's, let's go negative for a minute. Look up the statistics on legacy wealth. 70% is lost in the second generation, 90% on the third. Really? Look it up. I'm not making that up. Huh. So the concept of legacy wealth is a very, very misunderstood concept. Second generation 70% attrition rate, uh, I think it's like 90% by the third generation. So the likelihood that anything you create is going to last more than uh, you know, a generation or two is, is very low. And I believe that's because, now let's go back positive, I believe that's because people have a concept of leaving assets as legacy wealth, not knowledge, not skills. They're not leaving a business. They're not leaving the conveyor belt. They're leaving the assets on Just the conveyor the belt. assets. Right. But you're leaving these to, to family members that, that may not have, have built it, may not understand it. They certainly didn't go through the trials and the effort that you went through. And now they, they have all this real estate and that's great. Third generation is probably a bunch of spoiled grandkids. I mean, let's be honest, you know, mm. I don't know how many properties I've bought 
from from some legacy wealth owner. My grandparents gave me the, you know, my my dad bought all this real estate and he passed away. And and now mom and I are left with it and we don't know what to do with it. And we're not landlords. Hey, write us a check and you can have it at a huge discount. That's usually what happens in legacy wealth. (laughs) You don't have any properties I've bought from legacy wealth. And it's always at a tremendous discount because those people just want to check and they want the hell out of that real estate business. Because the, the other person was the one that created it. Now they're just going, I don't want to be a landlord. And they'll fire sale your, your assets. Mm-hmm. And, and you can pick up some really good deals from people that have inherited real estate. Those are some of your best buyers, sellers. Yeah, buyers. Because uh, they don't care. They just want to check. And they'll sell at a discount for money today. So that's kind of the concept of legacy wealth. I'm sure a lot of people are kind of like, you know, spit out their coffee this morning. But you know what I mean? It's like, that's the truth. And you can look those stats up. I'm not making that up. So my point in creating the the conveyor belt theory is to hopefully unravel those statistics and to create mm-hmm. legacy wealth that does actually go beyond a second generation or a third generation. Because you, you obviously just leaving cash and assets doesn't work. You've got to leave something else. Leave them a business. Leave them, leave them a system. You know that that hopefully will last longer. So that was the concept in that, and to show readers how a real real estate business is built. Yeah, yeah. No, I and I love that perspective. That's a that's extremely refreshing. That it's not just like, hey, here's here's a bunch of cash and just throw money at the problem and throw money at the yes and just leave it there just for them to to take on like the, the building gold as hell. I mean, you know, think yeah. about three four generations down the road that that building will be probably very old. It will have a lot of repair and maintenance needs to be done. It's going to have a lot of capital expense. It's it's going to be the you know in bad shape. It's going to cost somebody a lot of money, and at that point in time, the family will most likely make the decision to just fire sale the asset to someone like you or I, or one of our listeners, who's looking for a value add opportunity, and they're just looking to get a check and be done with a headache. And it's a great marriage, you know, buyer seller, but that's probably not what the individual who left the assets to the family intended to occur. <laughs> I'm just telling you from 16 years of buying yeah. legacy wealth from uh, from from people. Yeah, not what you think, but again, so. you're in your conveyor belt's pretty uh, pretty long because you still have your first one. Is that I just sold it literally 30 days ago? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We I owned it a little over 10 years. Just literally just sold it 30 days. I've sold. I've been in that seller in the year of, of 2021. Uh, we, I've sold my portfolio has, has sold off several assets. Did very well, very happy with those. Um, looking to replace them, but uh, yeah, 2021 was a really, you know, let me knock on wood. Being December, we have a few more days, but uh, 2021 so far has been a really good year for me and, and our portfolio, and for my investors as well. We've all done quite well. Congrats, congrats, that's awesome. And then you know, so leading into 2022. Uh, and actually, that's probably when this episode is going to be released, anyways, in 2022. But yeah. what are now goals and, and focuses for 2022? Yeah, um, working on the education business. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've I've got the real estate business kind of. The, I've got the conveyor belt running on cruise control. So my conveyor belt is operating pretty smoothly. I've got staff. I've got people. We know what we're doing. So that doesn't consume a lot of my personal time. So I'm working now more on, on the education stuff. I've got my team working on the real estate stuff. Uh, the education stuff isn't something that really can be outsourced. So I'm working a lot more on that. We've built the website, realestateraw.com. You can check that out. Putting out a lot of content, creating new content, videos, uh, things of that nature. You know, I've got I've got both of the books now that we've got launched and are running. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at right there. And then just kind of keep an eye on the market. And, and I really don't plan on working 
all that hard to <laughs> You know, it's, it's, I, I, I want to take a little bit of a break. I mean, you know, there's no point in, in, in making it up at the top if you don't take a break and kind of go play a little bit. So uh, 2022 is going to be a, you know, 50-50 work play year. I'm I'm, ho- I'm hoping. I always I always say that and then work shows up. Uh, you do what you got to do, you know. I always say I'm going to take a few months off and then a deal lands in your lap and you're in the middle of a deal. So that's the plan. And we all know how plans go, but yeah, that's the plan. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad I'm looking forward to to the next 2022 and following along your journey. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they get a hold of you again? Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, realestateraw.com. That's the website. Um, my email address is bill at gobroadwell.com. And Broadwell is B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L. It's like you lost your screen there. Yeah, no, I think uh, my camera just timed out. Oh, it must have. Okay. Well, I can see uh, a different camera angle. Yeah, there you go. That's fine. We'll All right. Yeah. So Bill at gobroadwell.com. Uh, again, Broadwell, B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L, gobroadwell.com. Yeah. Send me an email. Uh, you can find me on all the major channels, uh, social media, Facebook, uh, Instagram, all those things. If you just search Bill Ham Real Estate, you'll pull up a ton of stuff, a lot of free videos, a lot of information we've put out there. But uh, yeah, that's what we're working on now. Awesome. The team and I. Thank you so much, Bill, for Absolutely. for joining me on. Uh, I guess it's it's what it's what nine nine o'clock over there. It early is nine oh six. Yeah, nine oh six and an early morning over on the west coast. Uh, a lot of knowledge just dropped these past two episodes, and you know I look like I said I look forward to to the next step in your journey and Appreciate you know, following that following along that. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Thanks Take everyone care. for listening. Take care. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode. If you got any value out of the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you leave a rating and review on iTunes to help others receive that same value. If you're looking to learn more on how to passively invest in apartment buildings or self-storage assets, click on my link in the show notes to learn more. Thanks and I'll see you next time.